0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to
1: the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 15th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi. So, Rebecca, this is your first show from the West Coast
2: yeah yeah it's uh it's very different here it's earlier so how start. is
1: washington
3: how is it there <laughs> uh
1: you're
2: very close very close i am in california now i am san in diego the,
1: right
2: uh also closer you're getting closer i am uh, in the san francisco bay area and uh it's gorgeous here i have no complaints i do not miss buffalo sorry to all my buffalo friends <laughs> I miss my friends. Don't miss Buffalo.
0: But the Buffalo weather, Rebecca, you must miss that.
2: There are palm trees here, you guys. I just keep gaping at them. And at one point, my boyfriend said, why do you keep mentioning the palm trees? And I said, because in my head, palm trees don't exist where you live Palm trees are where you vacation. You know, you can see them for maybe a few days, but then you have to go home to your horrible uh, regular oak trees or whatever.
3: (laughs) That's what people Uh, who grew up in the eastern part of the United States feel. Right. right. That's hot weather, happy times. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Tropical. Make me a margarita. Yeah. I'm like right on the beach. It's It's so bizarre. And I don't know at what point – this will wear off, but it's just every – I've only been here a few days so far, but every morning I just wake up and look out my window and sigh happily. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> but right now the the fall colors are just about peaking. They're gorgeous.
4: Oh, my saying. God. They're awesome. I do love fall, so
1: <laughs> yeah. I will – I'll miss fall. <laughs> our, our palm trees aren't really trees, are they? I don't think so. I don't know. I'll keep you informed. I mean, they're not deciduous or coniferous. I think they're not trees. No, it looks like they are actually trees. They're just different, uh, different family. Aricacia. Yeah, it's right there in the name, Steve. Palm trees. Well, banana trees yeah. are plants. They're not trees. <laughs> not a lot of people know that. Not a lot of people care about that. <laughs> Jay, more than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
3: hey i found God. an interesting banana fact recently now that you're yeah. talking about bananas the banana flavoring the reason why when you you know eat banana flavored candy and whatnot i read an explanation for why it tastes a little weird to us and that's because the uh, flavoring was taken from the old bananas that you can no longer eat and we're not used to their that that style of banana flavor what do you think about that Gro
4: Mi- michelle really
3: yeah holy crap why don't they just why don't they update it
2: because candy banana is delicious. It's just weird.
3: Yeah, but it's not really like banana. It's like an alternate banana. And, and it, you know, yeah. it does make sense, but I I am marginally skeptical, but I did read it on Reddit, so you never know. So,
1: Jay, this is what I, w- what I would have to say about the banana flavor thing. I think the whole notion that it's because the chemicals derived from Gros Michel is probably not true. When they take the flavor, like the grape flavor or the banana flavor, they're just isolating the one – Molecule that has the iconic flavor that you associate with that fruit or whatever, but a real banana has multiple chemicals that are causing the flavor that all mix together, and so that that uh, one banana flavor, which by the way is isoamyl acetate, that's not really re- representing the full richness of the f- real banana flavor. So you wouldn't you wouldn't really expect it to taste like an actual banana. It's like strawberry flavor. Yeah, there's probably a hundred things in in strawberries contributing to their flavor just that one strawberry molecule is not going to cut it. You know what I mean?
2: Hey, (laughs) Uh, it's October
1: (laughs) Uh, 18th.
2: I have no segue. (laughs) On October 18th, on this day in history, first of all, in 1980, Mm -hmm. I was born. I feel like I should at least mention that.
1: Wait, wait, wait. So this is your birthday?
2: Yes. (laughs) That is what that means. (laughs) Happy birthday, Rebecca. Uh, Well, thank you very much but it also happens to be the date that we last made contact in 1967 with the Venera 4 not to be confused with the Venereal 4 which is a gang <laughs> <Something else>. of <laughs> never mind i'm just going to drop that joke
4: uh or is it or is it Venera
2: is it Venera i don't know anyway uh know. yes it's the uh a Soviet program, uh, that was exploring Venus all the way back in 1967. It launched. And it was really, it was the first, uh, object to enter another planet's atmosphere and examine it, like right there in, in the atmosphere itself, which is a pretty exciting milestone, I think. And so it did a chemical analysis of the atmosphere of Venus, and it found that it was made up of carbon dioxide with a bit of nitrogen and a little bit of oxygen and water vapor. And so, yeah, it uh, lasted for a couple of months, four months from June to October, at which point uh, we lost contact. And it's probably uh, being used by the Venusians as we speak.
4: I've read an interesting fact about that that probe. When it, went, when it decelerated to go in t- t- into the atmosphere, it experienced 300 Gs. 300 yeah. Gs. That would basically turn a person into like chunky salsa. You would, there would be nothing left.
1: <laughs> that, I'm surprised <laughs> okay. the
4: instrumentation.
1: The shield temperature rose to 11,000 degrees Celsius. Wow. That was hot. Venus is a pretty unforgiving place.
2: Venus is hot. That's why it's the named after the goddess of love.
1: And the atmosphere is like sulfuric acid. Yeah, so it rains acid there. Now, those are
0: extremophiles, if anything, is living there.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yes. that, that That's hard to imagine. I guess it's possible, but...
3: Yeah, I mean, I know that, that it deviates from what we think life would be based on and, and, you know, how life is on Earth. But, you know, couldn't you swap out an acidic liquid for regular water and, and not have it be that big of a deal if an organism has evolved to deal with it? It's, it, you know, right?
1: It's more the heat, too. I mean, you know, it's hard for any chemical to be really stable at that temperature. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on with some news items. Have you guys seen all the headlines about scientists finally showing evidence of near-death experiences in the afterlife? Oh, my
4: God, yes. Wow, this is huge. (laughs) Thank
2: goodness. Scientific proof that our soul continues living after our bodies die. Surely
1: the Nobel Prize can't be far behind. So this is the AWARE study, Awareness During Resuscitation. Uh, and this actually has been a much-anticipated study. We've been waiting for the results of the study for a few years. I've been following it myself. What was anticipated about the study is the fact that the researchers placed cards with images on them in hidden locations in emergency rooms. The idea was that if people who report a near-death experience, you know, they, they're, their heart stops, they get cardiopulmonary resuscitation, they survive. And for those people who report that they were floating above their body and they were experiencing the resuscitation as it was happening, then there's this bright, you know, very uh, designed-to-attract-your-attention sign on top of equipment or on top of shelves. And uh, you can only see them if you're from the perspective of floating towards you know, the ceiling, and if uh, any of the subjects reported seeing the cards and correctly identifying the image that was on them, then that would be some objective evidence that they were actually experiencing uh, the events in real time, and that would distinguish from the more mundane neuroscientific interpretation, which is, well, those memories formed at some other time.
4: Right, right.
1: When they, when they report remembering being resuscitated or floating above their body – that they probably formed those memories not when their heart was stopped and their brain was not functioning, but during the days or even weeks during recovery. So this was supposed to present objective evidence of that, that NDEs represent an actual you know, spirit outside the body experience. So given the headlines, what do you imagine the results of the study were? Well, completely <laughs> positive. Well, what were the headlines? You know, that scientists find evidence of life after death. It, actually, the study, from the point of view of finding evidence of people seeing the cards, was completely negative. This was, the study's being run by Sam Parnia. So 140 survivors completed stage one interviews. So basically, uh, in all the centers that they were set up doing this, there were 2,060 cardiac events. 140 of those people, uh, of the 2,060, 140 of them, had an interview afterwards. So most people don't survive and wake up after you have a cardiopulmonary resuscitation. 101 of those 140 completed the stage 2 interviews, and 46% had memory. So the stage 1 was just, did you you have any memory of anything happening? And then of those that said yes, then they went to a more detailed interview. Uh, Of those 101 patients, 46 had memories with uh, typical NDE themes. You know deja vu family recalling events, um, et cetera, seeing a bright light. nine percent claimed to actually have like a near death experience, and two percent described awareness with explicit recall, so basically two patients right had report reported seeing and hearing events during their resuscitation. neither of them saw the cards but the but apparently for those two patients who reported the out of body experience, the cards were not in place so the study protocol basically failed you know they did they did not capture any data so that's a bust right like the one you know signature aspect of this study that's supposed to set it apart from all previous more just descriptive interviewing and take you know what and recording what people say types of studies produced no data
4: wait if the cards weren't in place at that time why are they even included in the study results
1: well, because what they did was they just recorded what the people said, and that became the evidence. So the original purpose of the study was a bust, and then they just reverted to the old style. Well, let's just interview them and see what they said about what they experienced. <laughs> that's and, horrible! And therefore, that's evidence
0: of what that Right.
1: Well, one of them, Evan, one of them gave details that matched the details of what happened in the emergency room.
0: Oh, well, that's never been expressed before in yeah, cases like right. this. And of that's course, totally but mean.
1: those details came out a Not. year after the event.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, year. yes. Uh, and then you remember exactly what was going on a year ago in those conditions, no doubt about it. Your memory is like a tape recorder.
1: Yeah, so the, the criticism – I mean it's really, in my opinion, it's really disingenuous for Samparnia after – saying, oh, yeah, we're doing this study. This is the study that's going to be a game changer because we have the cards. It's objective evidence. And then he gets nothing, and he gets nothing, and then he sells that to the press as, we have evidence for life after death. And it's just the same-o, same old nonsense, weak, completely unconvincing, uncontrolled evidence. And, you know, out of the 140 people who who had some memories, one of them had some details that you could match to... Oh, there's a bald guy in blue scrubs. Wow. What are the odds of that matching? <laughs> you know, it's really and a beeping noise and there was yeah. a beeping
3: noise. Steve, I'm sorry. Did I hear you say that they interviewed people
1: a year after the event? Well, so they would interview them as soon as they were awake and healthy enough to be interviewed, just as the screening. Did you, do you remember anything? And then for those who said yes, they would do a follow up interview later. And then for the two people who had. Uh, the out of body experience, you know, where they apparently were remembering stuff happening while they were getting resuscitated. They were, they had a third interview and those were down the road. I think the one that he's presenting as verified evidence it was that third interview was a year afterwards. So the reason we don't find this kind of evidence convincing is because the opportunities for memory confabulation and contamination is huge. How many people, you know, family members, other you know, people in the hospital, did that person talk to? Their memory—they're trying to make sense of memory fragments, del, you know, delirium, stuff that they may have heard when they were semi-conscious, etc. They're they're constructing a memory, a narrative of what happened. It's all confabulation and contamination. And the fact that, um, some details, which are fairly non-specific, actually, match some details of what happened in a hospital, like you can't, I guess, at like typical details of what might happen is completely unconvincing. So this is not proof of life after death. It's, you know, it's just more of the same. And what we were waiting for with this study, the can anybody report reading the cards was a complete failure. So no evidence. And so, of course, the proponents of life after death are special pleading is flying. You know, they're explaining why it didn't work. It doesn't matter why it doesn't work. It's up to you to figure out a way to make it work and produce evidence. The fact that, you know, you have reasons for why the the whole card thing didn't work doesn't mean that the low-grade evidence is anything other than low-grade evidence. We're still left with just subjective memories which are subject to all the stuff that memories are subject to. And that's never going to settle the debate, that kind of evidence. You just should have sucked it up and said, Dark, we didn't get any data.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, the bottom line is, um, I think a lot of people that are doing research on this that don't have an agenda, like there isn't like people against a life after death. I mean, if anything, you'd figure people would be motivated on in the other way, that they mm. want there to be life after death. That, that's why you have to. we have to be so critical of this data and of the people that are being interviewed. But I would be thrilled if they proved... Some type of life after death. Who wouldn't?
1: Or even just whatever. Even if you, uh, a near-death experience showed that there was some kind of anomalous cognition going on, that's got to be interesting. Even if you, whatever you think about it metaphysically, I mean, the the result would be interesting. All right, but Evan, we may not be going to heaven, but at least we'll be going to Mars, right? Well, we'll be we'll be going Someday. there. I just don't know don't know how so long
0: we'll be living there or surviving there. I should say. Do you guys remember the Mars One project?
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: For those who don't, this is the Dutch non-for-profit that is planning on sending colonists to Mars for settlement starting about 10 years from now, which is not all that far away. And when the announcement that this project uh, was getting underway and it moved into its astronaut selection phase back in April 2013, that's when people everywhere really took interest. They were a buzz, And so far, over 200,000 people have submitted applications to become part of the first team of settlers of the planet Mars. Very exciting. And in addition, if that wasn't good enough, there are plans for Mars One to be a reality TV show. The viewers are going to vote on which of the finalists should be the ones to colonize the Red Planet. And that will no doubt boost the interest of people all around the world even more, and not to mention raise some cash to help fund the entire enterprise. Now, here are the first few sentences from the Mars One mission statement. Mars One is a not-for-profit foundation that will establish a permanent human settlement on Mars. Human settlement on Mars is possible today with existing technologies. Mars One's mission plan integrates components that are well-tested and readily available from industry leaders worldwide. And I think maybe the directors of the Mars One project may have to revise how that reads because the latest news about the progress of the project is not really all that promising. A group of graduate students from MIT have put together a 35-page analysis of Mars One's plans, and they found it would take about 68 days on Mars before the first fatality would kick in. Not good. Basically what's happening is that Mars One plans to have the colonists grow their own food and use the oxygen produced by the plants to maintain a breathable atmosphere. And that seems reasonable enough. However, the MIT students identified this as actually the most significant technical issue facing the project. A fellow by the name of Ryan Whitwim over at Geek.com summed it up pretty well. And I'll read what he wrote about this. The Mars One plan calls for the habitats to be within the same space as the crops are grown. This saves weight on the trip and simplifies the design of the habitats. At about 68 days, the first wheat crop will reach maturity and the level of oxygen will spike. To avoid a huge fire hazard, the oxygen will need to be vented, but there is not yet a reliable way to preferentially vent oxygen without also venting the nitrogen used to maintain pressure. Thus, the colony will run out of nitrogen almost immediately, and suffocation will occur due to low air pressure. So that's that's a big problem. As a fix, the paper suggested that building maybe a separate structure for growing food and siphoning off only the oxygen that you need for the air for the habitat. So kind of instead of living and making your crops in the same place, you'd have two sort of separate compartments. Um, But they say that that would be quite an expensive change, and the cost analysis of the whole thing basically blows up the entire budget on this thing. And um, it's probably
1: just a mismatch between how much food they would have to grow, how much oxygen that much food would produce, mm-hmm. and how much oxygen they would be breathing and CO2 they would be producing. Although you would think that in the long term it would all balance out. Growing all your own food and eating your food because you're just basically just exchanging oxygen for CO2. Right. Um, I guess it's origin- that I guess it's that it peaks. Yeah. Like yeah, there'll be times when the oxygen's peaking and that's producing a fire hazard. They need to be able to scrub it and save it for later.
0: It throws off a lot of the calculations for uh, for some other things having to do with also the amount of space that was actually going going to be required to to build this yeah. this this colony. They they estimated. 50 square meters of space originally. But if you're going to really do it the the way in which you're, you know, you, you're you not going to have this problem with the oxygen levels, you're going to really need about 200 square meters of, of growing area uh, in order to do it. So that sort of really throws a wrench into, into that part of the plan. Now, the MIT students and the professors who were part of this uh, analysis. They they're not saying that this makes the entire thing infeasible, but they did say is that it's it's not really feasible under the assumptions that they've made, and they're pointing to technologies that really haven't need to still be developed. That that we don't have a way of filtering out nitrogen and leaving uh, filtering out oxygen, leaving the nitrogen, for for example. Um, along with some other things like that. So we may not be ready in 10 years to, to go ahead with this. Um, cause, you know, and it's good. I think it's good that these kinds of things are being done. Certainly. Uh, you, we don't want, you know, there can't be, there can't be major problems with this. I mean, what yeah. an absolute disaster that would be. You really have to consider so many things.
1: Evan, let me, and, me ask you a very important question. Yes. So if inflammable means very flammable. How come "infeasible" means the same thing as "unfeasible" and not "very feasible"?
0: Because the English language is a mess.
1: All right, is that the best
0: <laughs> is that you can? A, do? Is that a, is that a, <laughs>
4: good
2: answer. Good answer.
4: Now, now, Evan. Now, I did read a comment by by one of the guys who's uh who's backing this, and he was saying that that it was an unfair representation. In that, yeah, there is no tested space technology. Uh, to deal with this this oxygen issue, but he said that the technology they have to deal with it is pretty close already to resolving it. So that kind of now, I don't know if that's just him, you know, just trying to cover his butt there, but uh, and I wonder how accurate it is. But yeah, but close is not existing, right?
1: We know with technology, saying close doesn't often doesn't mean much until it works. Until you have a a working device, yeah, but I. Yeah. True, right. but that's true, and but I do you, feel well,
4: better. I do feel better if, if if he says, "I agree," but we are close. That's a lot better than, "Oh wow, we haven't even looked at that yet."
0: I, I think, in respect to their time estimates, as far as how this is supposed to play out, you know, in ten yeah. years from now, that might be just too optimistic at at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, there can, all kinds of things are going to crop up. They're going to that are going to cause delays. This is too new and innovative for someone to sit down and think of all the possible possible things that can go wrong. And here, I mean, the, you know, the the Mars One people should be really thanking these MIT graduate students for doing all this work for them, basically. They're doing a feasibility mm-hmm. study that they should have actually done themselves. The other thing that they pointed out that I felt was fascinating was that a, a, a huge limiting factor is going to be just the delivery of spare parts.
0: Yeah, they ch- – they drastically underestimated the cost of spare parts and the logistics and the maintenance yeah. that was required to keep the station up and running. In fact, they in, in one of the points they made as far as the food goes, it might ultimately be more cost-effective to ship supplies, food supplies from earth to Mars every 26 months than to grow it. Then then to then to grow it than to grow it. Oh,
3: my God. Yeah, but, you know, growing it, doesn't that mean a a much bigger infrastructure? I would tend to agree. And also, what if the growing fails?
0: Well, that's an excellent point, Jay, and I think it all feeds into the point about the timeline of all this is that there's no room for error. This has to this has to work, or we're going to lose everybody. And they would, it would be irresponsible of them, in my opinion, to launch this mission until every la- until as much of this can be tested as as possible. And I just don't think ten years realistically is going to be enough, enough time, especially if they have to still invent some new technologies that are required to make this happen.
1: Honestly, they need a fail safe. You know, they need a ship on Mars, fueled and supplied, and right. ready to return to Earth. So that when everything fails, it's a lifeboat that they could get back to Earth. Otherwise, yeah, I think the probability of, of a TPK is pretty high.
0: I wanted to know, though, your guys' opinions on what do you think about trying maybe a test on the moon first before we go to Mars? I understand, you know, that really kills the 10-year thing on this whole thing. But maybe moon in 10 years and Mars in 20 or 25 years. I, I, I'd be interested in seeing something like that.
1: That would probably be better. I think that would be much more practical. It seems you know, pretty so, so obvious to me. You're three days away instead of three months away. That's
0: right. And, and a vehicle, you know, we can, we're, we like you said, there would be a plan B to get to get the heck out of there if things went horribly wrong. They'd Probably have mm-hmm. that pretty much ready to go.
1: Yeah, with Mars, so, you know, you got to worry about launch windows. You know, uh, with the Moon, not so much. It's not, it's not as big a deal. Yeah.
0: So that's the latest on the Mars One project.
1: So even if it doesn't actually succeed in establishing a permanent colony on Mars, it's interesting thought experiment that's kind of happening in the public domain, you know?
0: And that's good. Yeah,
1: I think so. As long as I'm not paying for it.
2: <laughs> it's the equivalent of
1: NIMBY. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I'll be happy, like to be happy to watch while somebody else spends $4.5 billion figuring out that they can't – you know, we don't have the technology to establish a colony on Mars. <laughs> oh, well. All right. But – what will make the whole thing much more feasible, uh, not infeasible, but what's, what would be the, the prefix that would make it very feasible? uber-feasible, hyper-feasible, is if we had a working cold fusion device, then at least they would have limitless clean energy. Right, Jay?
3: Everybody everybody needs a working cold fusion device, and we've been waiting for it. And the reason why Steve brings this up is because it recently some news has come out about a man named Andrea Rossi. Steve, it's a man, right? Yeah. He's a (laughs) man-man. He's a man-man. Andrea Rossi, this is an <laughs> Italian inventor known for creating the Energy Catalyzer, or the ECAT for short. You might have read about this. Uh, Rossi claims that the ECAT can achieve cold, fugi- cold fusion, which is a low-energy nuclear reaction. Uh, Rossi has had an interesting past. He started a company in 1978 called Petrol Dragon, selling a process he created that converts organic waste into usable oil. And the company failed due to accusations of dumping environmental toxins and uh, a little bit of tax fraud. Rossi spent four years in the in the clink for that. And um, it was five convictions that made it out of a lot, out of dozens that were put
1: against him uh, relating to the tax fraud. Don't gloss over the fact, Jay, that the local government had to spend 40 million euros to clean up the toxic mess that he left behind. And apparently by reports and all the time that he was doing this, he didn't produce a single drop of oil. So it certainly makes it seem like he was taking this toxic waste that he was claiming he was going to make into oil. He was just illegally dumping it and not producing oil. And then, yeah, then the, the taxpayers there had to spend 40 million euros to clean up his mess.
3: So sometime after prison, Rossi started a consulting firm called Leonardo Technologies. And that was founded in the United States. Now, he was able to land a defense contract where he would evaluate ways to generate electricity from waste heat using thermoelectric generators. Now, this isn't completely, you know, out of left field. It doesn't seem, you know, like an impossible scheme. A lot of people have tried to reclaim heat from, from things, naturally occurring things or from, from waste and whatever, but, Rossi developed his own device, and he claimed that it could attain 20% efficiency. 27 of the devices that he created were studied by the United States Government's Engineer Research and Development Center, which is a wing of the U.S. Army. And 19 of the devices did absolutely nothing. But Bob, don't get worried or anything, because the remaining devices actually did produce one watt each, instead of the expected 800 to 1,000 watts. (laughs) Okay, moving on. He he was
1: only off by three orders of magnitude, Jay. Yeah. Yeah, come but on, now let's a get back something.
3: Yeah, I all don't right, strike lots,
1: two. More than zero watts. So he's he's got a strike on his third, right? The third. I mean, time what else control. do you want? <laughs> Give him money, Rebecca now. Watson.
3: Thank you. Now back to recent <laughs> news. Rossi's ECAT cold fusion machine has been labeled as a hoax by many by people all over the globe, partly due to the fact that he's reluctant to share information about the specifics of his device. It's been reported by extremetech.com that, and I'm quoting this, uh, six six reputable researchers from Italy and Sweden observed a small e-cat over 32 days. So they looked at his his device for a 32-day period. It produced a net energy of 1.5 megawatt hours, and that's far more that can be obtained from any known chemical source in the small reactor volume. The isotope composition in lithium and nickel was found to agree with the natural composition before the run, while after the run it was found to have changed substantially. Nuclear reactions are therefore indicated to be present in the run process, which, however, is hard to reconcile with the fact that no radioactivity was detected outside the reactor during the run. So, what's going on here? Physicists know that nickel does not fuse into copper, even inside stars. And I didn't know that, but the key word here is stars. It Nickel does not fuse into... Into copper, even inside the most profound place in the known universe, inside a star. The insane heat and pressure that's found in stars is what is what you know. It's like a chemical laboratory with all of the all of the uh, gravity and and pressure that's happening. But you know what? That process is not happening in a star, and I highly doubt that it's happening inside of Rossi's machine.
1: So, a previous experiments, Rossi was claiming that nickel was fusing into copper. Although in those experiments, the isotopes of the copper were, were the same ratio that you would find in nature. So that is very highly unlikely. In this experiment, he's claiming that the nickel and the lithium are fusing into different litho- nickel and lithium isotopes, but not into copper. So apparently, this is a different Re- fusion reaction than the previous experiments. So this isn't actually replicating any previous experiment, it's finding a different result entirely. Yeah, that, but that's also
3: something that's very suspect, what you just said. Oh so, yeah, of course it is. And there's other <laughs> problems. Now, depending on how you look at it, fusion should produce a boatload of radiation and also high energy gamma rays. And none were detected during his test. Now, you know, to, to put it very simply, um, no radiation means no fusion. You know, right. without, without that as a byproduct of, of this reaction, it's highly unlikely that there's any yeah. fusion going on. And, you know, and then of course, um, if you take a look at this logically, um, and, and Tim Warstall from Forbes magazine, or he was writing for Forbes magazine, came up with an interesting point. I think a lot of critical thinkers would come up with this point or points like this, where Rossi's machine, if it worked, he could simply sell the energy that it generated back into the grid and fund future development, right? Seems like a very simple and smart proposition. But the fact that he isn't doing this, it just looks
1: fishy. What's more likely that a serial con artist has rewritten the physics textbooks and figured out a way to have fusion without radioactivity of elements that no one's been able to fuse before and get massive amounts of energy out of even though that shouldn't be possible or that <laughs> something fishy is going on here? You know, Let me think about that one. Wait, While you're thinking about it, uh,
3: keep in mind what Steve said before that he spent an enormous. Well, the this, you know the the state that where he was prosecuted in Italy spent an enormous amount of money prosecuting him and getting him through the legal system, and he wasted all that time and human energy and money. And now he's doing it again. He, you know, I look at this as sure. I guess we have to do the follow up. You know, the scientific due diligence to see what if this is true or not because the the stakes are so high. There's so much value here, but in the end. What's most likely is we're going to find out that it's all BS and there he is again wasting, you know, people's time mm-hmm. and energy when they could be off doing real science.
1: It's It seems disappointingly very unlikely that we'll be running our civilization on an ECAT device anytime in the future. By the way, did you guys – you know, when we were prepping for the show, uh, we got a couple of questions and came across a related news item about Lockheed Martin pursuing compact nuclear fusion reactor. Have you guys seen this? Yeah, yeah that's really it. It. interesting. Now, this seems, you know, much more promising. They're not uh, breaking you? the laws of physics, apparently. First of all, good. yeah. It's and a good start. Nice.
3: Right. So they're, they're proposing that they came up with a, a reactor that is the size roughly of a jet engine and that they were able to overcome some of the big, the really big and expensive, um, mechanisms that are needed for the current Concept of what a fusion reactor needs. Yeah, you know, we to, have, ca- to we clarify,
1: ha- they're talking about hot fusion, not cold fusion.
3: Right. Yeah. So I, I think that, um, you know, they said that they're going to have the technology in 10 years. You know, of prototype
1: course- in five, working model in 10. They did release some of the details to Aviation Week, apparently exclusively. And uh, so what they're doing is they're using magnetic confinement of heavy hydrogen, deuterium, and tritium plasma. Right. So because it's a plasma, it, it has an electric charge, which means it will be confined by a powerful magnetic field. The apparent innovation that they have come up with, obviously, I don't understand the actual engineering and physics, but the, the, the simple explanation of what they did is they, they configured the magnetic field so that the more the plasma pushes against the magnetic field, the more the magnetic field pushes against the plasma, the stronger it becomes. It's a self-reinforcing feedback loop of some type so that you can achieve the really incredible pressure and temperatures in such a small space because the magnetic confinement is much more powerful by about an order of magnitude than the previously used techniques, such as we talked previously about the ITER, which is the big fusion project in France, this will be a tenth that size because they can achieve the same kind of environment with a device, you know, one-tenth the size because of this innovation. The, the configuration of the magnetic fields has some kind of feedback process which makes it stronger. This is all standard fusion theory. Use magnetic confinement in order to keep the the pressures high enough and temp- temperatures high enough that fusion will occur and then it – the when fusion occurs, it will send neutrons, which are neutral and will escape the magnetic field. They'll go through the steel containment, which will heat it up, and then that heat runs a regular old turbine, just like any other uh, power source. So that all sounds certainly perfectly cromulent. You know, nothing is breaking the laws of physics there. Uh, but, you know, uh, we talk, it's a running joke on the show, five to ten years. They're going to have a prototype in five, a working model in ten. Okay you know we'll, we'll certainly keep us updated on how that's going you know we'll see how that goes there there are some skeptics who say well if they really were onto something why are they looking for outside investors which they are you know part of the reason why they're going public with this is cuz they're looking for people to invest in it if they were really confident in this technology you would think that a big company that huge would be keeping it to themselves that's an interesting point and i don't i don't know enough to know if that is valid or not but it's certainly interesting Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Hulu Plus.
2: Yeah, you've probably heard of Hulu, but Hulu Plus has a ton of extra options. So you can not just watch it on your computer, but you can also watch it in HD using just about anything like your game console, your phone, your tablet, smart TV, Roku, whatever. And you can watch current seasons of TV as they are being
1: aired on TV. Hey, you can get all seven seasons of Doctor Who. I mean, what else do you have to say? Wow. Nothing.
4: And Steve, that's one of the things I really like about Hulu Plus is it's the only streaming service to stream full current season TV TV show. So, you know, if you just, if you missed a show, bam, go right to Hulu Plus and you could watch a show that you missed last week or whatever. It's, I love that.
0: It's only $7.99 a month and you're going to get a two-week free trial when you go to HuluPlus.com slash sgu two weeks that's better than one
3: yeah so make sure you go to huluplus.com forward slash sgu so you get the extra free week an extra free week it helps to support the sgu it helps us make this podcast
1: and anything else that we do so we really appreciate it all right guys let's get back to our show well let's move on from we did the afterlife mars cold fusion now we're going to move bob to crocodiles yeah
4: it felt weird um, moving away from my typical physics and astronomy and material science and stuff to this, but I've I read this article and it just was so fascinating. I had to write about it. So recent research shows that uh, crocodilians are more adept hunters than previously thought. Beyond simple, uh, you know, cooperative hunting, they engage in coordinated and, and collaborative behavior with uh with fellow crocs that may be very surprising to you. Now by crocodilians I mean not only the usual suspects that everyone knows of course, crocodiles and alligators, but the more the ones that are a little less known, gariles and caimans. Um, which are also crocodilians and, uh, and and they're of course each fascinating in their own unique ways. So the, the first thing I want to say though is that these uh, crocodilians – I'm just going to call them crocs and I, by that I mean not crocodiles but crocodilians. They're even more fascinating now than I ever thought they were. They really in, are in many ways super reptiles. Uh, first off, they haven't changed hardly in about 80 million years. They're outlasting the dinosaurs. You know, their skin is not what you think of as alligator leather, but it's actually, for all intents and purposes, armor. They're armor plates all around their body except for their, their stomachs, their abdomens. Uh, and it even has bone in it. I mean, this is really hardy stuff. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this, their jaw strength is legendary. Uh, did you know that, uh, the Crocs uh, has the largest ever measured, uh, jaw strength than any other living animal that's been, me- that's been measured directly. Uh, some people say, well, what about white sharks? But uh, they've never been really measured directly. They can crush pretty much almost anything, bone, uh, even cast iron. One website said they can crush cast iron. I, I, maybe I, I want to see that, but that's, that's still impressive if it's true. They can exert 3,700 pounds per square inch, which is about 16, 16- and a half thousand newtons uh, of force uh, and some people say that's even more powerful than on a T-Rex um, lions and tigers can only do about 27% of that and humans only 4% so they have tremendous tremendous jaw strength they've even been seen killing sharks and big cats so these guys are nasty and I didn't know this they can survive injuries that would piss off a zombie you could rip off a, a limb or a tail and they would they could still survive they've got amazing immune systems
1: they said that about uh, the crocodile in Peter Pan. He takes a lick and he keeps on ticking. Oh, right.
4: God. Oh, oh, boy. So, uh, wow. so their the stomach acids oh. are the strongest of all vertebrates. Uh, they can digest, you, you name it, feathers, shells, horns, bones. Bones. Um, bones. They Look even – the they can even – they swallow rocks. Some of them swallow rocks uh, and th- those are called gastroliths, uh, which may help them grind food for <laughs> them. Um, I've even read estimates that they can survive a whole year. Or one website was saying three years without food. It's easier to do that because you just basically don't move, stay in the sun a bit, and you and you could last for a while. But still, a year
3: or three years— incredible. Bob, I heard one of them ate a box of Pop Rocks, and he was fine. (laughs) A whole box. Did you know they only eat fifty
4: meals a year, even in good years? Fifty meals. We do that in about wow. 17 days. So they are, they're amazing. The crocodilian brain is also more complex than any reptile, uh, which actually, I'm sure contributes to making them difficult to catch. This was interesting. Researchers have said that if you catch a, a croc one way, you won't be able to catch them that same way, most likely in the future, because they, they won't let you trick them again. So, I mean, that's how kind of on, on the ball they are. All of this makes them pretty much the most successful freshwater predators that there are out there. But it gets even more impressive, at least according to researchers at the University of Tennessee, they combined... 3000 hours of their own observations uh and they added that to scientific diaries that they went through from other researchers and they even used social media Facebook and Twitter to collect accounts written by other researchers amateur naturalists and even non-scientists now that's important because some some of these events are so rare that it's you know it's hard to really understand the breadth of their Behavior because it's it's hard it's hard to monitor them for extended periods. So even taking these little isolated instances that you know reputable people have made have seen uh, c- can actually can add some interesting data points. So what what they revealed was that the crocodiles they're not the crocodilians and they're not you know always the solitary you know maybe relatively unsophisticated hunters that you see in the nature shows. They hunt in groups. Um, using techniques that seem to require forth- forethought and sophisticated communication uh, with with other um, crocodilians. Now, e- examples of this behavior include multiple crocodiles swimming around a, a school of fish, and they, they're swimming around in a circle that's that's becoming ever smaller. So eventually, you have like a whole like a ball of these fish in the middle, and then the crocodiles would take turns swimming through the ball with their mouths open, just you know inhaling a whole bunch of them at a, at a time. Another one showed that, um, uh, showed a large crocodile. Now, this shows how they use their size in, uh, to their advantage in hunting or the, their differences in sizes. A large croc would drive fish from the deep water into the shallow water where the smaller, more agile ones could ambush them and chase them down. And, uh, another case that everyone's talking about is a, a, a big saltwater crocodile chased a pig off of a trail into, uh, this lagoon where two small crocs were, were waiting in ambush. So, I mean, it clearly shows that they've got this not only cooperative hunting, but it's, it's, it's really, it's coordinated and collaborative. There, it seems like they know where the other people are, the other crocs and what they're doing. You know, their hunting behavior is a level beyond what, what we had thought for years now that, that they, you know, we have known they, they, they do it in groups. And it's it really though, if you understand the, uh, the complex behavior of these creatures, it's not that surprising when you consider the care of their, you know, the baby crocodiles. Now, yeah, sure. They they are, they can be social for long periods of time but they do develop these long term uh, relationships with uh, with other you know with other members of their species and they do have complicated uh communications they uh they utilize not only vocalizations and postures but also touch and chemical signals so extending that behavior that, that complicated behavior to their hunting style uh d- isn't that surprising when you consider that but i was just fascinated by this and i really got a lot more respect for these creatures than, than i did even before
1: yeah they're very cool and i think it is a, sort of an anti-reptile bias that we mammals have you know we, we think of them as very unsophisticated, but they're just as evolved as we are, you know, in terms of how much evolutionary history we had they have behind them. And crocodilians, again, they they've been around in the time of the dinosaurs, they had a lot of time to be evolutionary evolutionarily tweaked. Yeah. Um all right, next news, Diane. This is interesting. This is a study uh this was done by food scientists, and they were looking at the effect of having scientific looking elements in either in advertisement or in communicating a bit of research to people. For example, they compared in the in the first study they had uh an article so it was just all prose article about the effectiveness of a medication and you know the control versus the placebo showing that the medication reduced the illness by 20%. And they compared that to a group of people reading the exact same article except there was also a graph showing the effect of the control versus the drug and showing visually the reduction in the illness. And there was actually a pretty significant difference in the effect that these two conditions had on people. In the first situation, without the graph, people interviewed later, 67.7% said that they thought that the drug was effective. With the graph, it rose from 67% to 96%. That's a huge effect size for this kind of study Yeah. yeah pretty impressive just by adding a graph the the information was identical and the graph added no new information
2: yeah this is this is a good example of scientists proving something that people using the science have known for many many years this is something that advertisers have understood literally for centuries like i'm thinking of ivory soap advertising back in gosh like the late 19th century that ivory soap floats because it's 99.44 percent pure it means nothing (laughs) it means absolutely (laughs) nothing really but uh it sounds really scientific and it worked people love that slogan to the point that i'm pretty sure they they might even still use it today i don't know they were using it up through the
1: 90s i know but From reading that first study, I was like, okay, how do they know that people were just, were not just better able to understand the information because it was being presented
4: visually? That's what I, that's what I'm thinking.
1: Yeah. Okay. So they did a couple follow up studies in the second study. So in the second study, they, they were, they, rather than asking people if it worked or not, they asked them to estimate by how much it, it reduced the illness. And again, the participant, participants who had the graph thought that it reduced it by a greater amount. Than by the people who didn't have the graph, and then still I wasn't convinced because I'm still think I'm thinking you know the visual presentation of the information they could just see the effectiveness they grasp it immediately. But in the third study, instead of a graph, a half of the participants were shown the chemical formula of the drug, and the other half were not, just a, a text description of the drug, like the name of the drug. And then they were asked like how what like how long would the drug work for, and those who were shown the chemical formula estimated at 5.9 hours. Those who were not shown the chemical formula was 3.8 hours. So it's an increase of 56.8%. So that has absolutely nothing to do with the information being presented. I mean, you know, and the presenting a chemical formula, I don't, I think that pretty well controls for the conveying information in a visual way element because it's not conveying any, any data you know, visually, it's just, here's the chemical formula, okay. So that does make it seem like just the presence of something science just sort of increases people's confidence in what's being presented, you know, which is what the researchers concluded. So I still think it's probably more complicated than all of that. But that does seem to be an effect that was running through all of the, the studies that they were presenting. And it was the third one that really convinced me that, they're okay, maybe there's something there, because it was just a chemical formula. It wasn't a graph displaying the information, you know. Yeah. So that's interesting. And people who believe in science are more susceptible to this effect, right? So if you're generally, you know, a scientific, you know, if you're a scientific skeptic who thinks science is great, you're e- more easily manipulated into, into, you know, having a positive attitude, something because you're being presented with sciencey looking information.
2: Until recently, I actually was feeding my cat science diet, wet food. Just because of (laughs) the science diet. Uh That's true. That is 100% true. And it's only recently that I finally looked up all the ingredients and realized that it's, it's utter crap, overpriced crap. I, and I'm sorry to see it go. Now I'm feeding them something with a boring name.
1: Yeah, but that's better than feeding them like nature's choice. You know, I don't, I like to avoid. No, you know, I you, am
2: actually now feeding them wellness, a thing called wellness. <laughs> wellness. Which yeah, is actually way better for them. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, I went from science diet to wellness and it's actually backed up by science. <laughs> as <long> as <laughs> but it doesn't have science in the name, Rebecca. I know. I know.
0: Yeah, marketing. Branding. It's a branding issue.
1: Yeah. So beware. Beware of the Gratuitous presentation of sciencey information as a way of making something seem more, uh, more legitimate. That reminds me though. So when we were, um, in the comments to my near death experience article, you know, about the aware study, you know, I had criticized the study, a, a specific study by saying, well, there's no statistical analysis in the study. Um, and this is a different study that we were talking about and. He said, well, you didn't read the study? There's statistical analysis right there. So I went back and looked through very carefully, and there is absolutely no statistical analysis in the study. However, there is a chart that lists the numbers of people in the two different groups and expresses it as a percent. Oh, wow. There you go. And he, th- he interpreted expressing the number as a percent, as a statistical analysis. Low threshold, but all right. <laughs> One last quick follow-up news item, actually. We talked last week with Andy Wilson about the uh, rather amusing encounter between the husband and son-in-law of UK alleged psychic Sally Morgan. We played the audio. Uh, The the husband and the son-in-law were making some pretty aggressive as well as homophobic and threatening sort of statements towards them. And after the show... They posted the video, uh, which always has more impact. You see somebody saying it, you know, it's, it's more emotionally impactful than, than hearing it. It's, you know, it's had a, it's stung. It's had a pretty significant effect. In fact, and tell me what you guys think about this. Sally Morgan has fired her husband and son-in-law over the scandal.
2: And I mean, she didn't see it coming. Go she, ahead and make your I jokes.
1: Yeah. Make
2: your jokes. Fill your joke in here. <laughs> Right.
3: Well, from PR I mean, perspective, it was the only thing that that she could do. I mean, it it does fix a little bit of the problem if you think about it from from the most most of the public's perception on that, I think will be, "Oh yeah, you know, th- those guys screwed up and she handled them." But I don't know if it really makes a difference in It anything.
1: does cuz it's plausible deniability for the believers, people who want to believe in her. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately,
4: it was kind of savvy.
1: But I do think that you know, for people on the fence or who aren't dedicated, you know, true believers, they're going to realize that this, you know, it seems to me, certainly, that this is a completely calculating PR damage control move. And, you know, it seems unlikely that she was completely unaware of the activity of her two of her family members who were also working for yeah. her, you know.
0: Yeah. And at one point she expressed that she didn't know what was going to happen, but to her marriage in the future because of all uh, of
1: this. That so seems totally, yeah, totally put on.
0: And and a little ironic that uh, the psychic has no idea what's happening to her yeah. marriage in the future, yeah. but, you know, it
1: doesn't get more personal than that, really. But when her husband was saying things like, we know all about you, I wonder who the we was that he was referring to, if, if she was included in that we.
0: Yeah, yeah, true. Maybe it was the royal we. You the know.
1: royal we. All right, well, Evan.
0: Yes? Time for a Who's That Noisy? I'll remind you that last week's Who's That Noisy was the noise that an insect makes. A noise an insect makes. And here it is again, in case you forgot. Sounds like a chewy toy that my dog plays with. You know, makes one of those little squeaking noises. That um, Oh, somebody said cockroach or hissing cockroach. And that certainly was a popular guess amongst some listeners. few people did get it right that that's a caterpillar.
1: Oh, that's a caterpillar.
0: That's cool. Of all things, yes. That's close. So, let's see. A moth caterpillar, specifically, is what it's called. And uh, it's a video from, well, according to, it looks like Japan. And it's a fellow who has this, you know, it's close-up footage of this uh, caterpillar on a branch. And he's kind of squeezing it at its at its tail end and it's making little those little noises as he as he squeaks it oh so excellent work to all those who guessed correctly there can be only one winner each week and from the sgu forums at sgu this is the name they chose nudie branch
1: congratulations mr branch or miss branch <laughs> yay right.
0: nudie all right we like nudie what more need be said all right, which leads us to the brand new Who's That noisy for this week. This is a voice that might be familiar to some, but maybe you've never heard him say these exact words before. Let's uh, see what he has to say. Uh, there is a rumor that was in U.S. News & World Report a number of months ago that uh, Jimmy Carter might make,
4: uh, make some unsettling disclosures about the UFO phenomena sometime in December.
1: We interviewed Jimmy Carter on this very show. About his UFO encounter. Indeed we did.
0: For your guests this week, send your emails. If you're going to send an email, WTN at skepticsguide.org Or as I mentioned before, go ahead and post it at our message boards. We have a subthread for Who's That Noisy Guesses, sguforums.com.
1: Good luck, everyone. Thank you. Evan, we yep. have a couple of corrections from last week. Rebecca, you, you were covering the you, Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark. I did, And at one one point you made the outrageous claim that they (laughs) were the (laughs) first ones to – first explorers to make their way to the West Coast. What do you have to say for yourself?
2: I don't know. Maybe I wasn't wasn't terribly clear, I suppose. Yeah. They were the first Europeans to go across the country and document
1: it for the government. Well, can we say in the United States? Because apparently (laughs) some – In the United States. Some Canadian did, did it before they did. Alexander
2: Mackenzie was a Scottish explorer, actually. He went through Canada to reach the uh, Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And it was the first east to west crossing of North America north of Mexico. Yes. But I don't think, I didn't say that, but you know, to be clear, yes, Lewis and Clark, uh, journeyed through what is today the United States. Alexander Mackenzie journeyed through what is currently Canada. And thank you, James Peterson, for sending us in that very interesting
1: note. And I believe that uh, Hernan Cortez was the first to do it in Mexico. In Mexico, in, yeah, or Mexico. to the yeah. south. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which was also before Lewis and Clark. And there was another error last week as well. The 2014 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which I covered, was I said it was won by three Brits, But it was actually just one Brit, John O'Keefe, May, Brit Moser. Now, you see the source of my confusion here. Uh uh And Edward Moser are apparently Norwegian, not British. Okay. (laughs) So, we have one email. That's over. We have one email this week. This comes from Dave Satterley. And Dave writes... I've heard that the Ebola virus, while dangerous, is not spread by casual contact and is not nearly as easy to spread as the flu. This being the case, it seems to me that the media's hype about the threat of Ebola in the United States is disproportionate to its actual threat, at least in terms of its ability to spread. Thanks for any information you can offer. So what do you think, guys? How worried do we have to be outside of West Africa of the spread of Ebola?
0: Depends who you're listening to.
1: Yeah, I I, I wrote about this because I found the topic very fascinating, the whole notion of like what should be our level of worry and our tone in communicating the myths and reality of Ebola. So just to recap, the the virus is still spreading out of control in several countries in West Africa, such as Sierra Leone. And there have been now cases outside of West Africa. A nurse in Spain has caught it. uh, A Liberian gentleman traveled to Texas, lied about his previous contacts, was diagnosed with Ebola in Texas. He has died, uh, but while he was being taken care of, he has passed on Ebola to two nurses, who apparently, despite having being all geared up in you know the hazmat gear and all the the protective gear that they need to have, there must have been some breach in protocol or whatever. But they they both caught it. So now there are two cases of transmission transmission in the United States. The second nurse, apparently, after her exposure, but before becoming symptomatic, we hope, rode on a commercial airplane. And so now they're trying to track down all the passengers on her plane to make sure that they're being monitored for any symptoms. In terms of how contagious Ebola is, it isn't very contagious. It, you can't spread it until you become symptomatic. And when you are symptomatic, it is spread through fluid, you know. It, you need bodily – the exchange of bodily fluid or contact with bodily fluid. It's not airborne. It's not going to become airborne, although it can survive in droplets. Uh, so as viruses go, it's not that contagious. But, you know, it's the fact that it's uh, – But I think we're running around a 70% mortality rate with this current infection. That's That's really what has people concerned.
4: Steve, how long can it survive outside the body?
1: Uh, a long time, actually. If if it's in a wet environment, you know, like in a droplet or something, apparently it can survive for several days. So you definitely have to sterilize everything anyone comes in contact with who has the virus. So that you know, there there are some concerning aspects of it. One figure that's interesting is the average number of people that an infected person spreads the virus to. The, any outbreak or epidemic will continue to grow as long as that number is greater than one. The, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. epidemic will start winding down when that number drops below one. So that's the magic number that we're trying to get to. With this current outbreak, it's something closer. It's somewhere between 1.5 and two. But it could. And that's actually a, a high number. Yeah, two is actually, it doesn't sound that high, but that's actually a high number. That, that's enough to allow for a geometric increase in the number of people who are being infected, which is we are still in the middle of, you know, with the epidemic in West Africa. It's still growing faster and faster. I don't I you know, honestly, this is a tough one. I'm I'm not really sure what to say, bottom line, about how worried we should be. You know, I just sort of lay the facts out there. There's about eight thousand cases so far, about, you know, four and a half thousand deaths. It's still growing It's overwhelming the infrastructure in West Africa. You know, other countries are sending aid. It, You know, we're not containing it so far. And now we're starting to see cases cropping up outside of Africa. And, you know, the one thing that was disconcerting was the degree to which we were all reassured that any U.S. hospital would be able to contain this virus. That's
2: what I find most disturbing is that this is a hospital in a – Metro area, I think. Yep. Yeah. Major and, city. Yep. Uh, yeah. And when you look at the, um, instructions that the staff there was given on how to deal with this disease, it's horrifying. It's, it's not what should be happening. They should have clear and effective communication about how to protect themselves and, uh, quarantine this disease properly. And they haven't gotten that. And it's incredibly disappointing.
1: Well, that, so yeah, that was, that was, as I said, disconcerting that the, they did bring some patients to centers in the United States, and they apparently were handled fine. So like healthcare work, American doctors who contracted Ebola in Africa were shipped back to the United States to hospitals that we know can deal with this kind of contagion, and they apparently have dealt with it just fine with no mishaps, no no other cases. However, the first, you know, certainly a very good hospital, but not specifically singled out for their ability to handle the Ebola virus. The first case they get, there's two known is spread to healthcare workers. This may not be the end of it either. So that's kind of a, we're zero and one. And that's not a good, that's not a good statistic. My sense is this. It's definitely going to get a lot worse before it gets better in West Africa. And it could totally overwhelm the infrastructure there. And It's going to be horrible. I, I, every, you know, the World Health Organization, the CDC, every expert who weighs in on it, no matter how cautious they're trying to be, when you listen to what they're actually saying, it's going to get bad. And we are not containing it right now. We definitely have to increase our efforts to get that, um, average number of people that the virus is spreading to less than one so that we can start, you know, turning this epidemic around. Um, a little concerned about these cases that are cropping up outside of West Africa. Uh, I think, I still think the chances are very low that this will, very low. And I want to re, reinforce that, that this will turn into a pandemic. I think that while there may be mishaps, there may be a, sporadic cases like this. I think that industrialized nations with a robust healthcare infrastructure will keep this from becoming a, a local epidemic. I don't think we're going to have an epidemic or an outbreak in the United States, you know, beyond these. A few cases. International travel. Gotta be a little concerned. I don't think, I'm not saying that you shouldn't travel internationally, but airports are starting to screen people for fevers and for their contacts, um, at international terminals. I think that's appropriate. Um, so, you know, international travel may be less convenient for a while. I don't know how draconian they're gonna get before the, this epidemic burns itself out. We'll see. When healthcare professionals on Ebola are interviewed, they're all careful to say, there's nothing we could do to reduce the risk to zero, but we are going to reduce it as much as we can. So there's a non-zero chance, again, I don't think this is something you need to lose sleep over, but there's a non-zero chance that the virus can get out in a big way. My, my fear is that, uh, imagine what would happen if somebody traveling from West Africa creates an outbreak in India, someplace that... Has a very dense population, not the best conditions, not the kind of healthcare system that would be needed to like really totally lock down an outbreak as soon as it occurs. Like the same thing that happened in te- Texas happened in Calcutta. I don't know well, what would that 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 I'm concerned about how that would go, or in you know a rural area, a densely populated but. You know, non-urban area of, of China, you know, where again, the resources may not be there to tamp it down immediately. And then if you get outbreaks in those, you know, densely populated countries. It would go
3: quick, right?
1: The, yeah. First of all, it be, could be so much worse than, than even what we're seeing in West Africa. And then, of course, the risk of spreading beyond those borders becomes greater or the methods that we would need to put in place to keep it from spreading would have to become more and more draconian. So. I just think that you know we need to take this seriously. I think the the odds of anything horrible happening are pretty low, but we need to take it seriously because this is a this is a, a a very deadly virus. The the one last thing I'll say is some experts are also saying that it's possible that Ebola may become endemic in Africa in this part of Africa, meaning that it'll essentially never entirely burn out. It'll survive in the human population in pockets and we'll just keep moving around but um even if it's no no longer an outbreak or an epidemic it'll be endemic. I find that interesting, you know, for such a deadly virus to become endemic. That's interesting to me, but that's what that's what some people are saying. Um of course that would be that would be a disaster as well. You know, that would be that would be horrible if that happened. Yeah, I'm I'm paying attention, you know to the whole thing and seeing how Good. Because you're a doctor. Well, I mean, yeah. For, obviously to I deliver. have an interest as a, as a healthcare professional, but very interesting to me what experts are saying and how they are revising what they're saying as new facts are coming to light. And I think the bottom line is that we got caught with our pants down. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. And now we're scrambling to try to really get this under control and we haven't Find done ketchup. it yet. So we don't mm-hmm. know where it's going to end up. It's going to get worse before it gets better and we just don't know where that where that's going to mean. Steve, don't
3: people that, that uh, work at the CDC and the WHO and and the what now and everyone around the world, don't they watch movies? Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: Or don't they read the news?
1: Yeah. Because oh, gosh, <laughs> it's ridiculous
2: shit. that we got caught with our pants down on this. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah, it certainly seems you know? that
1: way. It's been brewing for months now, and it seems like the first twenty minutes of a horror movie. Yeah, the, the last, it really does. The last six months, right? This is, yeah, it's it, that's the narrative that's unfolding. But just hopefully, it's not going to turn into, you know, a horror movie.
2: Yeah.
0: It's time for science or
1: fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Three interesting news items this week. Are you guys ready? Yes, please. Yeah. Good. As I'll ever be. Okay, here we go. Item number one, a new study finds that 93% of parents make at least one critical mistake when placing their newborn in a car seat to take them home from the hospital. Item number two, researchers find that a combination of strawberry and baking soda is as effective at whitening teeth as the most popular commercial whiteners. And item number three, a new measurement of star velocities finds that the mass of dark matter in the Milky Way galaxy is half of what was previously thought. Rebecca, since it's earlier in the evening for you, you can go first.
2: Okay. Uh Okay. 93% of parents make at least one critical mistake when placing their newborn in a car seat to take them home. My first thought was, come on. Then I think, first of all, you don't need a permit to have a baby. (laughs) There's no classes you have to take to have a baby. And so maybe parents don't know. Maybe car seats are confusing. Maybe... Parents have spent so long thinking about everything else that can go wrong that they're not necessarily thinking about everything they need to do to keep the baby safe in the car seat. I don't know. I don't have a baby or a car seat, but I can see how maybe it would be a little confusing and maybe they would just be so excited to get their new baby home that they would screw something up. Strawberry and baking soda... Is effective at whitening teeth more so than popular commercial whiteners. That is weird to me. I've heard of baking soda. I have never in my life heard of using strawberry. Strawberry. Yeah. Like, do you dip the strawberry in the baking soda and rub it on your teeth? Or (laughs) like is it the seeds in the strawberry? How would it whiten your teeth? If anything, it would dye your teeth pink. So I don't know. That one is weird to me the last one star velocities find the mass of dark matter is half what was previously thought yeah why not why not nobody has a goddamn clue what's except for bob who is probably biting his fingers off right now to say something but
0: i feel like every uh, he's only down to the second knuckle
2: every day <laughs> there's some new estimate of dark matter. I'm overstating it, but uh it makes sense. Half, obviously, is a huge amount, but to me, it's not that crazy. I didn't even know this was a thing, but I can't imagine that strawberry on your teeth is going to actually whiten it. So I'm going to say that's the, f- the fiction.
1: All right. Bob, since you're apparently so anxious to go, I'll let you go next. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right.
4: The 93%, the car seat. You know, 93 seems high and i can understand that you've got you know generally a parent that is a first time parent for for many of these so they're not savvy or experienced in terms of putting a, a baby in a car seat and um baking soda and strawberry yeah baking soda makes perfect sense to me but the strawberry i can't imagine why although i could see perhaps there's some critical chemical in, in the strawberry that um that Brings it up to the level of, uh, common commercial whiteners. But I would have thought by now that we would have determined pretty damn well the uns, what the unseen mass, whatever it is, but we would have determined fairly well how much gravitational pull is, is, is a anom- is anomalous. Um, so cutting that in half seems a little weird to me. Um, so wow. I'll go with the, the teeth whiteners. Fiction. Damn.
1: Okay, Evan. You <laughs> know you are.
0: Steve, I remember specifically coming to you for advice on how to put my car seat in before my daughter was born because mm-hmm. I wasn't embarrassed. I knew that I'm like, I have to get this right. This is too important. Steve, help me. And you did. Thank you again for that. Oh, I you're, appreciate it. You're quite welcome, man. She got home safe and sound, I must admit. What that has to do specifically with 93% of other parents, uh, probably not much, Um, the next one about strawberry and baking soda, as effective as the most popular commercial whiteners. Now, I mean, those, those whiteners on the, on the, on the store shelves are pretty intense from, from what I'm told. I've never whitened my teeth, um, that way, but from other people I said they've, they've, they've got some serious chemicals in there. The last one, star velocities. Doesn't that mean, are we talking about the, the mass of dark matter? Yes. But it's different in the Milky Way galaxy than other dark
1: matter? No, it's the total amount.
0: Oh, amount. Amount. Okay, okay. Gotcha. Quantity, not... Uh, okay.
1: Yes, not the property of the dark matter, right? Sh-
0: I have, I, you know what? Ironically, of 3, I think this is the most plausible one. I'm stuck here. Strawberries and baking soda, I suppose. I'm going to go with that. I mean, it's... I'd never heard of it before. I think those commercial whiteners are pretty intense with the chemicals that are in those, and I don't see these uh, other substances working as well. So that's it.
3: And Jay. Okay, so first, I am the 93%. I, my my child is is 20 months old. I remember the day we brought him home crystal clear. I remember being handed this gigantic piece of plastic with padding on it and having absolutely no idea. My wife figured it out. But she wasn't at the car when I was setting up the seat. And uh, I am the 93%, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I don't think that if we got into an accident, anything uh. that bad would have happened. But I certainly didn't have it all the way in the way that it was supposed to be. Uh, but I was driving about three miles an hour on my way home. And Steve, I'm telling you, man, you can't put news items in here about dentistry or teeth or anything and think you're going to get anything past me. Mm-hmm. That's why you went last. Why you went last? Yeah, like seriously. Okay. In a couple of weeks, um, when
0: it's Thanksgiving, you'll go last again.
3: Yeah, the, the <laughs> old <true>. baking soda <laughs> mixed with anything routine is not going to be any more, nowhere near as effective as the the high powered, um, intense, and you know, very mildly caustic chemicals that people put in their mouths to bleach their teeth. So yeah, this one. There is no doubt that this one is the fiction. There's no way that there is there is a chemical found in, in strawberries. Um, I would actually go the other way and say I would be worried that some something in the the, uh, the pigment of strawberry could actually stain your teeth. So, yes, that one is the
1: fiction for sure. So all seem pretty darn confident. Very sure of yourselves.
3: Great GWR. Yeah. That's right. We're not
1: afraid to make a mark uh, in the
0: ground, Steve. 93% ones. Got me worried a little.
1: Okay, well, I suppose I'll take these in order. You all pick the same one, so it doesn't really matter. We'll start with number one. A new study finds that 93% of parents make at least one critical mistake when placing their newborn in a car seat to take them home from the hospital. Jay tells us that he's actually in the 93%. rest of you think that 93% (laughs) of new parents have no idea what they're doing. And this one Mm -hmm. is science Steve, before I mean, you go into hooray, the, literally, the study, let literally. me explain to you what <laughs> I think it is. Okay, a little bit further. Um,
3: yeah. So the bottom line really comes down to lack of time, right? You know, most people aren't really that thinking that far ahead. Unfortunately, there's so many other things that you're worried about, and the car seat. Man, I bet you there are circumstances where people don't even have
1: a car seat. Mm-hmm. Let alone well, they, know how to install. Mike, it, they won't let you take car. the kid home from the hospital if you don't have a car seat. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so this was a study where they specifically looked at parents taking their kid to home from the hospital for the first time, and ninety three percent of them made not a small error, but a significant critical error that would have been dangerous. You know, leaving the baby on top of the car,
2: for instance. Well, for
1: example, like not not buckling it in at all, or not tight not tightening it enough.
3: Yeah, you, you got to get your
1: foot in there. Not really clicking the it in it. properly or having the seat too close to the front seat. Oh yeah, that's mm. deadly. That's it that's yeah. So I remember obsessing over it myself I and mean, I had that thing locked in there so goddamn tight, you know, the car seat in the back, <laughs> I remember that. But it was a pain in the ass for my first daughter, you know, who's now 15. I think that w- the one of the cars we had at the time didn't have the handy dandy Metal clips there, yeah. ready for the car seat. You had to finagle it with the seat belts and stuff. Uh, but I, I just said screw it. I bought a um, not a bungee, but a, you know. A- <laughs> did you bungee? Did you bungee your child to your car? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no,
0: just the, just the seat. Yeah, oh, like those, uh, like a, a nylon strap—the
1: kind of nylon strap you would use to tie yeah. luggage to the top of your car or something. Yeah,
3: to, <laughs> that would rip right through a nubile
1: skin, right? <laughs> a no, no, newbile. No, for to, to, to connect the seat to the car, obviously. Jay,
2: he didn't rope it over that's the right. soft spot. Yeah, come
1: on. <laughs> no, I I had it's across the forehead. I had that car seat permanently <laughs> strapped into the car, and very, very, very tight. Uh But anyway, so yeah, so you're right, there. I think I think you're right, Jay. What happens is. There, it's like, yeah, I'll get to it, you know, kind of thing. And then before you know it, you're squeezing out a kid, and then your the husband is like, oh, damn, I haven't put that stupid car yeah. seat in. And then their first time, it's it's a little complicated, <laughs> you know. And you, you would figure though, every
3: hospital would have like the guy that you know, like that's get move out of the way. Let me take care of. Let this, me show you, you how to they, do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the car, car seat, seat guy. valet. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Sixty nine percent had the harness too loose. Yeah. Or here's another one: the mm-hmm. retainer clip mm-hmm. was too low. That retainer has got to be Mm -hmm. in the right right place. That was 34%. Okay, let's go on to number two. Researchers find that a combination of strawberry and baking soda is as effective at whitening teeth as the most popular commercial whiteners. You all think this one is the fiction. And this one is... Fiction. (gasps) Fiction. The fiction.
4: Yeah, yes. baby. Thank you. Uh-huh.
1: Strawberries, come on. There was oh, a yeah. study, though. I didn't make up the strawberry bit. There was a, it was a study. Who would do that? By Dr. <laughs> <The> <laughs> <Strawberry> <laughs> bit. So ran Dr. Kwan, Seuss. Ridiculous. Published in the journal Operative Dentistry, where she compared. She, you know, she actually looked at the, the, this is actually a folk remedy. Strawberry. I think it was on Dr. Sure. Oz or something, you know. <laughs> strawberries and, and baking soda. It was on the Dr. Oz show. There's YouTube videos and everything, and it's like a natural replacement, you know, for the commercial stuff. So she tested it on teeth that had been extracted, you know, and she found that it had absolutely zero whitening effect whatsoever. Zero. Yeah, just nothing. It what it does is it just it just cleans the teeth like any brushing would do, and so people may. See Interpret that as whitening because they're just removing crud from their teeth, but it, it does, it actually didn't have any of what they would consider a whitening effect. It didn't remove any of the, the stains in the teeth. You know, just, just remove the superficial stuff that any brushing would do. Yeah, baking soda and whatever doesn't cut it. Okay, all of this means that a new measurement of star velocities finds that the mass of dark matter in the Milky Way galaxy is half of what was previously thought, and that one is science. And if you guys read this, Bob,
4: Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, okay. I did.
1: You did, Jay? I did, I, yep.
2: I did I not, didn't. but...
4: Yeah, I was just, surprised, and I would, it, that would have been a serious contender that, that, to be fiction in my mind because, like I said earlier, it's like, how could we be off by so much in terms of what the anomalous, you know, gravitational yeah, forces? Yeah, I was surprised,
1: too. I was surprised, too. This was a, a, a pretty extensive survey. Um, this is done by astrophysicist Dr. Prajwal Kafla from the University of Western Australia, at the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research. And uh, essentially, it's just a more accurate survey of stars on the outer fringes of the galaxy. The reason we know that dark matter exists, and for a brief recap, dark matter is stuff in the universe that has mass but that we can't see. This makes up about 25% of the universe. Only 4% is the stuff that we could see, 25% is dark matter, and the rest is dark energy. The notion of dark matter was actually first, uh, first proposed to explain why the stars are rotating about the galaxy faster than they should be. Um, given the mass that we can see in the Milky Way, it, the stars should be flying apart. Or they should be rotating more slowly, one or the other. But, so there must be more mass holding them together. And, but we can't mm. see it. So, Dark matter, you know, there's matter we can't see. So we don't know what it is, but we know it's gotta be there because its gravity is there. So this is essentially doing the same measurement, just in more detail, looking at those stars that I guess would be the, would tell us the most information about exactly what the measurement of the mass, mass in the Milky Way galaxy is. And, uh, their calculation was 800 billion solar masses. Is this the mass of the dark matter in the Milky Way, which is about half of the previous estimate? Which is a little surprising. Yeah. Bob, did did you did you notice the escape velocity of the Milky Way galaxy? Oh no. No, what was it? So the escape velocity <laughs> for Earth is eleven kilometers per second. What do you think the escape velocity for the Milky Way galaxy is?
2: Is it laden or unladen? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Five hundred and fifty kilometers per second Or about three hundred times as fast. Holy, that's more than I than I thought. It yeah. Would be. So if you Uh-oh. want to break through that barrier on the edge of the galaxy, <laughs> like <a> Star Trek, <laughs> nice. Yeah, you got to be going. It's just fast. not a visible yeah. barrier. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, good work, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Well. Jay, you gonna quotify us. I do.
3: I have a quote sent in by a listener named Matt Poinsett from the United States. And this is a quote from a man named Leon Wieseltier, W-I-E-S-E-L-T-I-E-R. He is an American writer, critic, philosopher, and magazine editor. And the quote is, A democratic society, an open society, places an extraordinary intellectual responsibility on ordinary men and women because we are governed by what we think we are governed by our opinions, so the content of our opinions and the quality of our opinions and the quality of the formation of our opinions basically determines the character of our society. That means in a democracy, in an open society, a thoughtless citizen of a de- democracy is a delinquent citizen of a democracy.
1: Interesting. Leon! Whew.
2: Hey, uh, uh-huh. one last plug for Quizotron, October yeah. 25th in San Francisco at the Castro Theater. Tickets are online at bayareascience.org. It's going to be a lot of fun.
1: And I'll just say for our schedule, I have published on the SGU Science News site. And if you go there, you will see an entry called the SGU uh, Down Under Tour that has all of the details of our tour through Australia and New Zealand, including our stop in uh, near San Francisco which ironically Rebecca you won't be there because you're going through Hong Kong I will not sadly Yeah and so and we will be updating that as any details change or anything that's the your one stop for all the information about a tour so you check out the information for all the events how to buy tickets contact information dates times places and any updates will be there so check it out All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining me this week. Thank Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Get your flu shots, everybody. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU, or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you.